Hi, and welcome to episode 85 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy and Ryan Adams from awardsdaily.com. My name is Sasha Stone. Today we're continuing our, you know, combing through the early Oscar years, and we're now we're up to 1933's sixth annual Academy Awards. And it, it was kind of an interesting year because the the world was introduced to Katharine Hepburn, Mae West, Jean Harlow, and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, um, King Kong, the musical, Busby Berkeley musical. And it was also the year that the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild formed. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But first we'll start with the fact that this was the weirdest, longest period of the Oscars because they were trying to get their schedule back on track from how they were doing it before, which was holding Oscars twice a year, right, you guys? It's like They, they did hold Oscars twice a year as they tried to get their schedule straight. I think the main problem was that their eligibility period was from August to July instead of January to December. It was They, they started their eligibility period from, and so they wanted to get that on track so they could have literally the best of the year instead of the best of some kind of strange year that begins in August 1st. Right. So this was the longest period. It went from August all the way through to the to the next year, right? So it was like mm-hmm. a year. I believe. When was the, the Oscar night? Was it in March? March. March. 1934. Yeah. And it covered mm-hmm. uh, August 1932 to December 1933. Wow. Yeah. It's like 18 months. Right. That's and a-, a lot of the movies that came out in late 1932 had were so long ago that they really fell through the cracks some really important movies that the Oscars had for the Academy had totally forgotten about by the time 1934 rolled around yeah. although there were three three of the 10 nominees were from 1932 so they didn't completely forget about them mm-hmm. yeah the the ones that uh, opened um before August but right in 1932 so this you is mean a- after August uh, you're right. Yes, exactly. So after August. Okay. So, um, and then this was also the year that they started, I think that this was the year they started calling Oscar, Oscar. Before that, it was the Academy Award. And now it was Oscar. Mm-hmm. And the, the, it got its nickname from the Academy side, officially named the Academy Award of Merit. The statuette is better known by its nickname, Oscar. While the origins of the moniker aren't clear, a popular story has it that upon seeing the trophy for the first time, Academy librarian and eventual executive director Margaret Herrick remarked that it resembled her uncle Oscar. The Academy didn't adopt the nickname officially until 1939, but it was widely known enough by 1934 that Hollywood columnist Sidney Slosky used it in a piece referring to Katharine Hepburn's first Best Actress win. I think before that it was used in a kind of a sarcastic way, kind of as a slur, and then right. it started having more respectable connotations when people said it, right? Yes, exactly. Our friend uh, Francis Marion, the writer Francis Marion, who helped uh, reignite um, um, Marie Dressler's career, said that it was really disparaging that people who wanted an Oscar but didn't have one yet, and but hadn't won one, sort of talked about it snidely and, and gave it a nickname called uh, the Oscar, like yeah. to sort of demean it almost. But then this year in 1933, when Walt Disney accepted his Oscar for um, Three Little Pigs, he had the word Oscar in his acceptance speech, and suddenly it, it had it legitimized it. And as he, like you said, it was the first time that it appeared in print, too, as the Oscar. So the other story about the origin is that Betty Davis claimed that she named it after one of her former husbands, but that's probably not true. Hmm. Yeah. I, I know it, it is debatable. People, 
you know, some people say it was this. The the academy itself says it's debatable that it's debatable. You know, right. um, but you know, we we in this podcast we've been drawing, or I have been drawing a lot of my references and history from the book Inside Oscar, written by Damian Bona and Mason Wiley. So a lot of what I talk about and the way that I talk about it is directly from that book. And I know you guys research your things independently. And I know Craig like watches all the movies. He was you weren't you Craig watching all the he watched I watched, actually watched at you know because Craig was watching and I watched Cavalcade. <laughs> I rewatched a few that I hadn't seen for a long time. I didn't get to quite as many as I wanted, but yeah, Cavalcade was one of them. Yeah. I could have get my hands on Cavalcade this past week, and I know I saw it a long time ago, but I don't remember that I ever got through it. It bu- bugged me some certain things about it, and uh. I gave up on it. I, it's not it's not a bad movie, but I just I'll talk about why I don't like it. When yeah. Should we talk about that, or we're gonna yeah, hold that until um, later? It's kind of the elephant in the room as the as the <laughs> best picture winner. It's yeah, probably it one of the least well-regarded Oscar winners of all time, right? Yeah, I mean, and it is kind of a footnote of this year, but we can definitely talk about it as we get closer to talking about the ceremony. But Mm -hmm. I think we should start with um, what really this year was really about, and in my opinion, it was about these women um, and the unions forming. So... So, in, you know, according to Inside Oscar, it was like 1931, David O. Selznick had released uh, two big films, King Kong, right? People still mm-hmm. talk about King Kong. And Flying Down to Rio, which I personally remember very well because my sister and I were huge Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers fans. And we watched all their movies over and over again. And whenever we could get their hands on them, we dressed up like Fred Ginger. She <laughs> got to be Ginger. I had to be Fred. <laughs> but um, I have pictures of myself as Fred Astaire <laughs> with a hat, a bowler hat, and a tie and everything. We took tap dancing lessons. We were so obsessed with them. And, and so, I, of course, I remember flying down to Rio. And it's really just cutie pie um Astaire and Rogers, like really young. And they had they were supporting characters. They weren't the leads. But they eventually, of course, people figured out how great they were, and they started putting them in movies like Top Hat and The Gay Divorcee. And um, but it also, but Selznick was more famous for introducing the world to Catherine Hepburn, who was 23 years old, a graduate of Bryn Mawr, um, and was cast in A Bill of Divorcement by directed by George Cukor and starring John Barrymore. And Inside Oscar has a funny anecdote where they say she was so headstrong that when the film wrapped, she said to John Barrymore, thank goodness I don't have to act with you anymore. And he reportedly said back, I don't think you ever had, darling. <laughs> right. So she wasn't paying any attention to him or any interaction with him. <laughs> and it says that the first glimpse of Hepburn was her dramatic entrance. George Cukor had directed her to simply walk down a staircase and sigh. That moment launched, you know, launched her career, and she was quickly cast into three upcoming films, Little Women, Christopher Strong, and Morning Glory. And Little Women and Morning Glory turned Hepburn into a, an overnight sensation and household name. But she was still labeled difficult by Hollywood, as Inside Oscar notes. That she was written about in the Hollywood Citizen News, quote, she delights in eccentric poses. Off the screen, she wears blue denim overalls and hobnailed boots. She carries a pet monkey and refuses to attend parties. One moment she admits, and the next moment she denies a marriage to Ludlow L. Smith, a New York, New York insurance man. She is one of six children. Her father is a reputable surgeon, and her mother campaigns for birth control. <laughs> <laughs> so that, and Catherine Hepburn was in Morning Glory, and of course she's... Does she win the Oscar this year for Morning Glory? Yeah. Yes, I think so, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. She didn't show up. She wasn't there at the Oscars. Neither the Best Actress or uh, Charles Lawton, the Best Actor winner, neither of them showed up. Neither of them were actually members of the Academy at the time. They were both kind of outsiders. No, wait. Charles Lawton did not win 
Um, Paul Mooney won, didn't he? Right. And so Catherine Hepburn's main competition was um, was May uh, May Robeson, who starred in, and Frank Capra is going to be the the sad star of our podcast. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. sorry to say Frank Capra, but uh, her, the main competition. This is so, this is why I love these early Oscar years so much. Is they were. I mean, not to sound like a broken record, but they were so female driven. I mean, if you have these incredibly strong movies like. Catherine Hepburn starring in, you know, Morning Glory, and then Mae Robeson, who was 75 years old when Capra put her in this movie, um, which was his first movie, and it, and it was uh, called... Lady it? for a Day. Lady for a Day. Mm-hmm. And according to, to Inside Oscar, Capra said he wanted to make art, but he also wanted to win an Academy Award. And he was not aligned with any major studio, but he was at Columbia Pictures, which was then a small company located on what was called Poverty Row. And now, of course, you can't even get an apartment on Poverty Row. It's so expensive. It's down there by Culver City, I guess, right? Mm. Um, So, but Capra was concerned with the working man, you know, as he always was throughout his career. And in this movie, the 75-year-old Mae Robeson played Apple Annie as a poor street vendor who enlists her gangster friends to help her seem like a socialite to her visiting daughter. So it's another one of these like sad, long-suffering mother roles that they had so many of them. But the film was a huge hit, and Robeson became like the toast of the town at 75. Mm-hmm. Um, but it says that Capra would get hit with an accusation that would plague him throughout his career, Capricorn. Um, mm. as people sort of dismissed his work a lot, and... Um, the New York Herald Tribune wrote, uh, the lady in whose honor celluloid toasts are now being drunk in broken glass is May Robeson, whose extraordinary performance has had more than anything else to do with the success of Lady for a Day. The picture itself has been justly celebrated as a vivaciously efficient example of first chop hokum manufactured with a skill that is almost savage in its ability to call its shorts. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means, call its shorts. Maybe, Maybe call it shots, do you think? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's a typo. Maybe it's a typo. <laughs> but, it probably um, is. <laughs> and I'm always trying to read between the lines and fix things in my head. Like, what could that mean? That's <laughs> Always the editor. Typo. Always the proofreader. So um, you know, the, I think Capra gets um, a bum deal when people say Capricorn. But, you know, I think look, the way we look at his films now, they all have a kind of a dark Edge, that mm. really there's an underlying current of darkness in all of his movies, even the ones that were maybe considered smaltzy at the time. Look at um, A Wonderful Life, you know, how dark that is. It, I think that he really had, he was good at, at giving the dark edge a, a surface gloss that made it easy to swallow. And he's also really great at the happy ending deal. So that if you give a movie a happy ending, you're going to get accused of being corny, right? Mm. But I think that overall, he's a lot darker than people gave him credit for back then. Everybody was telling uh, Capra that Lady Four Day was, a, was going to be a big hit and was going to be really successful at the Oscars, and so he talked him into, it talked himself into believing that he was going to, not, that it was going to probably win four Oscars. And he says in his biography, "No pictures had ever won four major Oscars before. It would set a record. Hot damn! I wrote." I wrote, I wrote and threw away dozens of acceptance speeches, practiced sly humility before the mirror, rehearsed emotional breaks in my voice at just the right spots. Mm. I ordered my first tuxedo. He even rented a house in Beverly Hills so that he could impress the voters. And he, he said, I was driving everybody nuts. And so this is his preparation leading into the Oscars, Oscar night. He thought he was going to walk away with four awards that night. You go ahead and tell part of the story. All now. right, so they get to the part where they're going to call out Best Director, and they say, and the winner is Frank 
and poor Frank Capra Stan leaps to his feet and runs up to the stage <laughs> like he's going to um, but it's not Frank Capra it's the other Frank Frank uh, um, Frank Lloyd Frank Lloyd who wins for what is that what was that thing Cavalcade <laughs> <laughs> and that well, the thing, uh, part of the detail is that for the very first time at the Oscars, they had an Oscar host who who, pres- who presided over the entire ceremony, and it was Will Rogers. And Will Rogers played a lot of dramatic business about opening the envelope, and he apparently knew Frank Lloyd. And when he opened oh, yeah, the envelope, right, right. all Will Rogers said is, "Come up here and get it, Frank." Oh, that's right. right. That, he Frank. said, "Come and get it, Frank." And so <laughs> Frank jumps. Frank. Frank Capper jumps up, and there's crowded. You know, his table's in the back, and so he's working his way up through the crowd. <laughs> and the spotlight's trying to find him. He's shaking hands with people and saying, "Excuse me, excuse me." You know, thank you, thank you. And the spotlight's trying to find him, and he waves his hand and says, "I'm over here. I'm over here." And at that moment, the spotlight cuts over to Frank Lloyd, and Capra is left there standing in the dark in the in the banquet room, standing up, and people start yelling, "Down in front! Down in front!" <laughs> So talk about humiliating. So he so he sheepishly walks back to his table and says everybody was in tears at his table. You know, just oh, just God. absolute so you know, awful. devastation. That's just awful. I can't imagine. You know no one ever probably did anything like that ever again at the Academy Awards, but that was definitely <laughs> That's like a career well, ender right there. The only- he, had, he bounced back from it pretty nicely. He sure well, just did. think of the of the big deal they made about Michael Keaton pulling his speech out of his pocket this year. This past year, when he when he thought Michael Keaton was when he thought his name was going to be called, he had yeah. a speech out of his oh, God. that yes. that video mm. was all over the Twitter. You know, I know, so, I know, mm. horrible. <laughs> or the shit that Bill Murray took just for not reacting properly when his name wasn't called. Yeah, you can that's, imagine. That's so minor compared to Frank Capra <laughs> jumping up, <laughs> coming from chair. behind, and, you know. And he was kind of an outsider anyway, because like I say, he wasn't a studio muckety muck, and you know, mm-hmm. um, we should mention that uh, we're not quite getting to the unions yet, I don't think, but. Um, but there was a there was a lot of controversy about the fact that you know because might as well talk about it now because uh, President Roosevelt had had made a bank holiday a certain day a bank holiday mm-hmm. and it kind of threw Hollywood into chaos since they had all this borrowed money and they were throwing money around and so what they did was they asked every they the Academy suggested everybody take a pay cut basically for the duration of this crisis. And during the Depression, I imagine, had to do with that. And after two months, the Academy didn't lift the pay cuts on all the employees. I mean, even though they had done it on a sliding percentage for because the lower wage earners, like the technicians who don't get as much as the executives or the producers, mm-hmm. complained. And they said, we can't live on half of what we make. And everybody yeah. was asked to take mm-hmm. like a 50% cut. So when they when they when the Academy failed to, to reinstate their old pay levels, the the writers all got together and, and resigned from the Academy and formed the Writers Guild. And then not <clears throat> shortly thereafter, the, the actors did the same. And the idea was that they were resigning from the Academy, which itself was put in place, as we know, because we did it, we did that year, um, as a way to kind of be like, address the unions or block the unions. And, and so they could have more control over the money. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> the Academy was supposed to be like a mediator between right. the studio bosses and the and the talent, and the Academy blew it with with yep. 
they showed whose side they were on, and it was, you know, yeah. definitely the producers in the studio. So they formed these unions, but then when the Oscars rolled around, there was all this weird conflict about who was going to show up and who wasn't. And, you know, basically everybody showed except, like, Catherine Hepburn and, and then the other actor nominee. Mm-hmm. But, but almost everybody was there. It wasn't like it wasn't well attended. Yeah, I think by I think the people who, especially people who were nominated, wanted to see if it, even even if they had the Academy still it was becoming to be just about the awards. They even though the 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 unions were supposed to be an alternative to the Academy, this the the Oscars are what kept people coming back to the banquet. Right. So that that's a pretty significant change. The um, the forming of the WGA and the forming of the. Um, SAG and Ryan, you were saying that it was also the um, National Board of Review was in full swing, and and I think were I think the New York Film Critics they're 1935 maybe they start to form, but um, mm-hmm. we're getting close to the to that. Um, I think the New York people had started to believe the same thing that we were already seeing, that even people in the Academy were seeing that the Academy was a lot of a popularity contest thing. And there were people, there were New York academics and film studies were just supporting, just starting to get a foothold, serious study of film. So a lot of academics and film critics in New York got together and they thought we can make better choices or at least alternative choices to the Oscars. And they were actually on track first doing the best of the year, like the 10 best list and things like that. And not that they necessarily influenced the Oscars, but they often beat the Oscars to the punch. They often, because they announced their awards in December and the Oscars didn't come out until March, the the NBR sort of stole their thunder a little bit and managed to pick up on the strays that had fell through the cracks, movies like Red Dust and uh, Trouble in Paradise and the movies that we were talking about last week that, that the Oscars overlooked, the... NBR managed to recognize. Right, they right. Were, they were so, pretty impressive back then. Looking at the um, at the National Board of Review for that year, Topaz, T-O-P-A-Z-E, was their best film, and Berkeley Square, Cavalcade, Little Women, Mama Loves Papa, The Pied Piper, She Done Him Wrong, State Fair, Three-Cornered Moon, and Zoo in Bet- Budapest were the... They only gave out a top 10 films and top 10 foreign films, and it doesn't say what year that they gave that out, but there was a little bit of Oscar crossover. And the Academy, for their Best Picture nominees, they had Cavalcade, the winner, unfortunately, which was Mm -hmm. Fox Studio, 42nd Street, Warner Brothers, A Farewell to Arms, Paramount, I Am Fugitive from a Chain Gang, Warner Brothers, Lady for a Day, Columbia, this was Columbia's first Best Picture nomination, Little Women, RKO Radio, The Private Life of Henry VIII, independent she done him wrong paramount smiling through mgm and state fair fox mm-hmm. see the the mbr was already giving foreign awards to foreign films at the time too and they counted private life of henry the eighth as a foreign language film and the year before in 1932 in december when the oscars skipped a year altogether they awarded i am a fugitive from a chain gang um, best Picture, the winner of, of, of Best Picture of the Year, the NBR did, and the other movies they they picked up on were, like I said, a Bill of Divorcement. See, they were already on board with the Bill of Divorcement in 1932. In December 1932, they were already naming Bill of Divorcement that the Oscars didn't catch up until 1934 about. One, so, they, Scarface and Tarzan, you know, all those movies that you mentioned last week that, that the Oscars overlooked, the NBR managed to realize were mm. great. So you know what's weird is that I'm looking at the um, the best actress in a leading role, and Catherine Hepburn wins for Morning Glory. You know she's she's up against Lady for a Day, Mary Robson, 
And Diane Winard, Winyard for Cavalcade. And I remember while watching Cavalcade, it seemed like such a huge ensemble. I don't remember there being any specific lead role in that movie. Mm-hmm. What I remember about Cavalcade is that it reminds me a lot of like a Downton Abbey type story. It was like Downton Abbey in London. It was like upstairs, downstairs kind of story about the aristocrats and then the servants downstairs. And it sort of tracks the uh, history of England from 1899 to literally to, to New Year's Eve 1933. And it shows about the way that society sort of is become, has started to become undermined. And that's one thing that bothers me about it is because they made it look like that loose morals and sexuality were the downfall of society, when in fact it was World War One and the Depression that was causing everyone's hardships. Well, I think but, we should get to sex when we start talking about Mae West. But um, <clears throat> as far as I could tell from watching Cavalcade, and believe me, I could not follow it. Like Facebook was more interesting than Cavalcade. But uh-huh. um, I think that uh, it was it seemed like it had that early gravitas because it dealt so heavily with World War One. So I, I felt like it had a lot of war themes, and I know that that, that woman has that great last scene, and maybe that's why she was nominated. Um, right. It, it, um, it was based on a Noel Coward play, and I'm sure the play was actually pretty spectacular. It had hundreds and hundreds of performers in it. It was this big, epic thing that they only actually produced in that format one time, and I think it was probably... As a play, it was spectacular, but as a, but as a movie... It just, except for there's like a couple of montages where they're kind of covering World War One, that were sort of impressive. But it, it, um, it, it's like there were, it's like movies still at that time were so conscious about being taken seriously that I think they often one way that they would do that would be to rope themselves to a to a popular stage production. But mm-hmm. you know, the, the things that you do on a stage aren't the things that you do in a movie. And there were some people, and, and it seems like it just relied on on it, its stage history to be to be um, taken seriously but you compare it to uh, like a movie like Ryan mentioned and we sort of talked about it last week we've been sort of chomping at the bit to talk about Trouble in Paradise where uh, Lubitsch gets it he's not he's not trying to do a play on film he's 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 trying to make cinema and there's a subtlety and a nuance to it that you can have because the image is blown up on this huge screen so everybody in, in a sense has sort of a front row seat and there's none of that subtlety in Cavalcade and Ryan's analogy about Downton Abbey is perfect because it's like a, a whole long boring season of Downton Abbey squeezed into two hours except you don't have Maggie Smith in it Right. The, one critic at the time said about Cavalcade, if there is anything that moves the ordinary American to uncontrollable tears, it is the plight, the constant plight of dear old England. Right. So yeah. even you know that you know looking looking over at England and the and the trouble they were having, especially with with Hitler looming on the horizon, because Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in 1933. Mm. A lot of people were really worried about England and what was going to be happening over there. Yeah, I know. It's a crazy thing that it won Best Picture and Best Director. Um, is it yeah. the first to win both picture and director so far that we've been doing this? Uh, you know, it looks like that would be something we would have to be really well aware of, but I've forgotten. I know that it was the second Oscar that, that Frank Lloyd won. I'm going to have to look this up because it looks to me like Cavalcade won picture, director, it won art direction. I mean, they really loved this movie, the mm-hmm. Academy yeah. back then. That was definitely their their kind of... Uh, and this also year, by the way, they had Best Assistant Directors winners at the Oscars. They gave awesome. awards to Best Assistant Director. 
Um, but anyway, Cavalcade beat 42nd Street, A Farewell to Arms. Uh, those two movies I can't believe in. Little Women, my God, how could it beat that? Um, but Morning Glory was not nominated for Best Picture, weirdly enough. Uh, and George Little- Cukor had a good year. Little Women and Dinner at Eight were both George Cukor movies in 1933. Dinner at Eight also strangely, bizarrely got overlooked at the Oscars. I yeah. can't believe that. It's such a great movie. I mean, it's, it, Craig, last week you were talking about how Grand Hotel set the template for the MGM all-star cast movie where they would gather their biggest stars together and concoct a plot so that they could all be on screen for 10 minutes apiece. Only I think Dinner at Eight does it much better because the stories are more interwoven and more better, better interconnected. And the performances are just so much more light and bright and cheerful. And it's just a much more entertaining movie, I think. It's another example of, of, of cinema versus stage. The, the mm-hmm. people behind Dinner at Eight knew, what the, knew the elements that they were working with and took full advantage of them, whereas Grand Hotel seems a little bit stagey. Mm, right. Sure. Um, I, I have to correct something I said a minute ago about Frank Lloyd winning. Frank Lloyd did not win his second Oscar. He had been around in Hollywood since the silent movies, but it was his first Oscar. So he was sort of a he was a. It was he was a popular choice because he had been around for so long, but it was only his first Oscar and his last. What I was thinking of is something I looked up, just happened to look up because I some somebody on Twitter had a question about the early Oscars, why you see so many of the Oscars or, uh, directors repeating themselves. Between in the first five years of the Oscars, there were six directors who won 15 of the 23 nominations. In, let me put that another way. In the first five years of the Oscars, there were 23 nominations for Best Director. And of those 23 nominations, six directors won 15 times. Wow. So, they, you know, more than 80% of the time, six directors had it wrapped up. It was King Vidor won three times. Louis Milestone won three times. Clarence Brown won three times. Frank Borges, Von Sternberg, and Lubitsch. Um, no, I'm looking at nominations, the number of nominations, not wins. So the, anyway, let me say that again, too. The number of nominations where King Vidor was nominated three times, Louis Milestone three times, Clarence Brown nominated three times, Frank Borzegi nominated twice, Von Sternberg and Lubitsch both nominated twice. So it's like you couldn't get rid of these. I mean, you didn't want to get rid of them because they were all great, but like they really had things wrapped up. They really had a handle on it. And I should say also that um, this is the second time since the Academy started that picture and director matched. The, the other time was um, All Quiet on the Western Front, that one. Lewis Milestone. Lewis Milestone, and then this one. So that's interesting because of the one, two, three, four, five, six Academy ceremonies, it only matched twice out of that. And of course, that would change once they once they made it an even five best picture and mm-hmm. an even five best director. Then you started to see your matches a lot more. That's another thing that's strange that we haven't talked about because I don't guess there's any nobody really knows why. But a lot of times in these early Oscars, there were only three nominees in categories like Best Director and Best Actress and Best Actor. They right. only had three nominees instead of five. And they say, and the Academy says it's because they didn't have as many films. And the reason that they expanded everything was because film itself expanded. It, it became really successful, which is a good mm-hmm. time to talk about the two sort of major driving box office forces, other than the melodrama, which um, the Capra had filled that slot with his film. The Busby Berkeley musicals were making shitloads of money, and Mae West came upon the scene. She actually saved Paramount from bankruptcy um, because people just, you know, they loved her. And she had a one, she had a, a play that she wrote called Sex, and it got her thrown in jail for 10 days. 
So she already had a national reputation from that. Yeah, and she wrote her own dialogue, um, and she, you know, some of her memorable lines, is that a pistol in your pocket, or are you just glad to see me? (laughs) Mm -hmm. She's great Um, at those one-liners, and people say that she really polished them, that she really spent a lot of time on them, just like Jerry Seinfeld said. He just worked on the same joke, just the phrasing and the wording over and over until he gets it just right. Right. So night after night, she done him wrong, and I'm no angel, made, you know, shit tons of money and pulled Paramount out of its hole. Um, but she pissed off the Catholics, Monsignor Amito Giovanni Ciccogni, whatever, however you pronounce that, sorry to butcher it, said about her, um, how shall the crimes that have their direct source in immoral motion pictures be measured? Catholics are called by God, the Pope, the bishops, and the priests to united and vigorous campaign for the purification of the cinema, which has become deadly menace to morals. So um, what ended up happening was the because of Mae West and other quote unquote sexual savages, they formed the, the Catholics formed the Legion of Decency to rate Hollywood movies on their moral content. And Joseph Breen of the Production Code Office told the studios that from now on, the production code would be strictly administered in order to get a, and in order to get a stamp of approval, the film could not contain obscenity in a word, gesture, reference, song, joke, um, or suggestion. Even, See, that's the key. And they, they, Go they, ahead. They, they put like an asterisk. Even when it's likely that the that it could, it, even when it's likely that only a small percentage of the audience can understand, it would still be banned. But Mae West found a way around that, and the same way that Hitchcock did and Dorothy Parker did, which was just by being more clever. You know, she'd mm-hmm. still get her yeah. sex jokes out, but they'd be more clever. That's the thing about it's the suggestion part that is that they really clamped down on. When we talked about a lot between 1931 and 1934, uh, when um, when Hayes was in charge of the production code, he was really toothless. He the way that the production code used to work is they it worked at the script level. They would submit the screenplays to the Hayes office, and they would go through it with a fine tooth comb and pick up on anything that they wanted to have cut out before the movie was made, because the studios didn't want to have to mess with doing reshoots and editing their movies after they'd already finished. So it all took place at the script stage. But you can get a lot of things into a script that really fly right over the heads of sort of naive, innocent censors. And like you said, would fly over the the heads of a lot of in the audience, too. You had to be kind of in tune to catch those naughty nuances to even Mm. know what was going on. But Mae West, like you said, it made her more clever because she had to use innuendo and double entendre and things like that. It actually improved her her movies that she did that but another thing she did on screen that would not be in a screenplay are the sounds that she made she had this purr this kind of guttural growling cat-like growl that she would do when she was around a, an attractive <laughs> man that is not going to be in a screenplay but when you see it on the screen and see the way she shimmies around in those corseted outfits and things it was something that they weren't prepared to see and so she snuck all those things past she sneaked all those things past the censors right yeah and I that's mean, what upset them yeah, that and and there was also yeah other ones. Jean Harlow. We already talked about Marlene Dietrich. You know these these other women that were very sexually provocative. And of course, it's just so weird. And isn't it so typical that it has to be the women's sexuality that has to be clamped down on? You know, mm-hmm. no one's ever going to go around complaining about the male sexuality. It always has to be women are too overtly sexual. You know, mm-hmm. and it, well, it's the men who were complaining about it. The men who were in charge right. felt threatened by that because another thing Mae West did too. Not only was she did she have her own sexual willpower. And her, and, and her own sexual agency, seeking out her own pleasure. But she, in both those movies from 1933, she done him wrong, and I'm no angel. Cary Grant is basically her boy toy, she, you know. And <laughs> men don't like to see that. Men don't like to see women predators in movies. Right. It really tripped them out. Well, when I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. 
I see a man in your life. What, only one? I changed my mind. Yeah, does it work any better? Well, I'm caught between two evils. I generally like to take the one I never tried. Now, uh, take care of these men. Yes, give them all my address. Well, Thank you. I am delighted. I have heard so much about you. Yeah, but you can't prove it. Haven't you ever met a man that can make you happy? Sure. Lots of times. What kind of husband did you think I should get? Mm, I should take a single man, leave the husbands alone. Oh, I can always tell a lady when I see one. Yeah, what do you tell them? I had a shooter lion once. Really? Was he mad? Well, he wasn't exactly pleased about it. <laughs> uh, you were wonderful tonight. I'm always wonderful at night. <laughs> Aren't you forgetting that you're married? I'm doing my best. What's a good of resisting temptation? There'll always be more. Well, I wish you'd forget your principles, Ruby. I must have you. Your golden hair, your fascinating eyes, and alluring smile, and lovely arms. Your form divine. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is this a proposal, or you take an inventory? You certainly know the way to a man's heart. Oh, funny, too, because I don't know how to cook. I'm sorry you think more of your diamonds than you do of your soul. I'm sorry you think more of my soul than you do of my diamonds. Do I bother you if I look over your shoulder? No, do I bother you? <laughs> I'll never forget you. No one ever does. Well, it's better to be looked over than overlooked. Great town, St. Louis. You were born there? Yes. What part? By all of me. <laughs> What'd you do, get your hair cut or have your ears moved down? You know I've been mad about you from the first time I laid eyes on you. Well, you're my whole world. What do you want to do, drive me to a madhouse? No, I'll call you a taxi. Young lady, are you trying to show contempt for this court? No, I'm doing my best to hide it. I wonder what kind of a woman you really are. Too bad, but I can't give out samples. I should come up sometimes, see me. And they also, you know, it was also only since 1920 that women even got the right to vote. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the right. fact yeah. that they're so uppity with the, their sex stuff in the movies, they had to be it, clamped down on. But you know what's funny about that is I'll just say that, you know, you want to talk about the one thing that, that's going to drive curiosity about sex up is that kind of repression. Because, you know, my sister and I grew up watching these old movies, and basically that was our education on culture. And they were so sanitized. You know, that, that, you know, you kind of grow up with this distorted view that everything's supposed to be shut away and, you know, and that, that sex is dirty or whatever. And that, that gives rise to, like, curiosity and the porn industry. And people just kind of couldn't go kind of nuts. Mm -hmm. um, usually when you dig, drill down from, like, some hideous sex crime, you can always find some creepy religious person behind it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's all, it's the, it was the Catholic Church because not only did they have their ratings, their, their silly legion of decency, but they also sent word out to all the parishes and the priest tell you the priest had told the parishioners if you go see these movies you're going to go to hell or you're committing a sin right. and so hollywood could not deal with that they could right. not face the box office blow that that because from 1929 to 1934 box office in america dropped from 90 million a year to 60 million wow. so that's like a third you know, they lost a third of their audience and they couldn't afford to risk any more losses like that wow yeah may west said and um in a, one of her biographies or autobiographies, she said that she had came to Hollywood to battle dep the depression, repression, and suppression.
depression, repression, and sub suppression were the things that she came to Hollywood to, to battle, she said. She's so great. I mean, as I'm going through yeah. these, you think of, like, people can never find interesting female characters to write about. Well, Mae West is one. How come there's been no movie about her? I mean, if there has, it's like some horrible, like, TV movie, right? I'm sure. Yeah, I never, I don't, I'm not aware of one at all, but it's amazing that she wrote, she didn't just write her own lines. She wrote the entire screenplays for these movies. Right. You know, it's amazing. And she, and she did the same thing on Broadway. So when she came to Hollywood, instead of having a Hollywood executive who made the image of a, of a female star, she came ready-made. She had already made her image. And she was 40 years old, too. Another th surprising thing. She was no ingenue. Mm. She's and fascinating. So, it's amazing to see her, even in the context of the times, being so openly sexual and in charge of her sexuality. But it's even amazing when you compare it to how sanitized and PG-13 and afraid of sex movies are today, especially, like Sasha was saying, especially sex coming from, from women. It's like we've gone backwards since, since her. Mm -hmm. Nobody, oh, nobody's matched oh, yeah. her and we've gone backwards. Absolutely. We certainly don't when have any Mae Wests around. The, the women who are like sexually um, in control tend to be, you know, kind of gross over, older ladies, like people that, that young men would run screaming from, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right, the, the cougars um, and the milfs. The cougars and the milfs and the, you know, always the, the overweight woman in the movie. I, mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say overweight. I don't know what the PC term is, but, you know, they're the ones who are always the over-sexualized one, you know, like like mm -hmm. Melissa McCarthy in Bridesmaids, who is very funny, by the way. Mm -hmm. But um, but that's always like the joke. The fat the fat woman is, is the most horny of the bunch. it's not threatening. Yeah. Well, you know, it's another thing we talk about the production code a lot as almost like an abstract thing and like an oddity and a quirk of the 1930s, but it was actually damaging to society, I think, when they clamped down on this. Because when they clamped down on women, they also clamped down on expression of, of gay people and all kinds of other mi minorities. They just wanted to sanitize and homogenize everything. And they succeeded in doing that for 30 years. It was the 1960s before we began to see liberated women again, you know? And so Mae West was really the last of that breed. You know, Mae West and Jean Harlow were the last people who got, and Barbara Stanwyck maybe, because in, in 1933, Barbara Stanwyck came out with a movie called Babyface. Oh my gosh, if you want to see the epitome of pre-code movies, Babyface, she's like viciously self-centered, and she, the movie starts out, she's being prostituted by her father to begin with, so already it's like, wow. And in order to escape that life, she, she goes, she moves to the big city and decides if people are gonna be using her for sex, she's gonna use it right back at them. She's gonna use sex in order to succeed and raise herself up in society. And she works her way up through this company and destroys all these men's lives on the way up. If you wanna see like the, the for me, one of the very best pre-code movies, Stick Out Babyface with Barbara Stanwyck. But then see, just five years later, Barbara yeah. Stanwyck is making movies like where she's become the femme fatale. Right, double which indemnity, which is the, the tragic, you know, yeah, the tragic she's dangerous. To, yeah, that they have yeah. to kind of be punished and killed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, they started, the women who, who were liberated in the 1930s become the femme fatale of the 1940s, and it's like a warning to men, stay away from this kind of woman. Yeah, and it's kind of like after the, I mean, it reminds me sort of of after the Civil War, how there was, there was Reconstruction, and then there was such a huge blowback from that, that... Jim Crow laws were in place, you know, the racism and treatment of black communities just got worse after that, you know, what didn't get better, and in a way, this era of, like, the liberated female right after the vote, kind of the way that they sort of clamped down on women 
um, and leading up to the 1950s when you couldn't find mm. more repressed women on film, right. you know. They had to be housewives and domesticated. Mm. It was yeah. literally domesticated. They had to domesticate women in, in movies. And one more thing on the gay subject. Uh, there was a movie in Germany in 1932 or 1933 called Mädchen in Uniform. Literally means maidens in uniform or little girls in uniform. And it was like the first renowned lesbian movie with the lesbian kiss and everything. And in Germany, once they saw that lesbian kiss, the movie became a sensation and the producer said, can we have more of that? Can you add some more scenes of lesbian kissing in the movie? We want more of that. Hmm. And so they did that. And it was one of the movies that the NBR, the National Board of Review, recognized as one of the best of the year. Meanwhile, in America, Greta Garbo makes Queen Christina and Thalberg said, let's kind of play up the lesbian thing about that, that she's this queen and she also has this... Uh, this um, lesbian thing going on with one of her courtesans and something, and Garbo was all for it. But the production co clamped down on that. It's like, no, you have to cut out all the lesbian stuff. We can't be having that. So in America, you're like, no more lesbian stuff, and in Germany, it's like, more lesbians, please. <laughs> so what's so the, difference the difference between what's the difference between the Hayes Code and the production code? The Hayes Code, well, they were both, the studios, I think, both sort of helped inaugurate both of them because the studios wanted to avoid having the federal government come in and impose restrictions. And so they wanted to do it under their own auspices so they could have a little bit, keep an eye on things. And so they appointed Hayes, who was a former postmaster general and a GOP Republican guy. And he was, basically, they ignored him between 1931 and 1934. He wanted, he made his little proclamations, and they would do a tweak here or there. But movies just kept getting worse and worse with the gangster movies and the sexuality and stuff like that, until, as you say, the Catholic League of Decency cracked down hardcore, and they replaced Hayes with Joseph Breen, and Breen was going to take, had, was a no-nonsense kind of guy, and he had the authority from FDR to enforce it, and so that's when I think the production code really took force, and that's the difference, I think. Mm. Well, I, go ahead, Craig. I was just, uh, Ryan was talking about Machen in Uniform. I was going to bring up another controversial foreign film, Ecstasy. It was a Czech film, and it was, it starred, uh, Hedy Lamar, although she wasn't Hedy Lamar yet, she hadn't come to Hollywood and gotten famous, but it had actual nudity and it, it portrayed a female orgasm. And these things were just things that even even in the pre-code era in Hollywood were things that just weren't done. Wow. It's amazing. That's and just, amazing. And see, in, in Europe, they, of course, in Germany in 1933, Hitler became chancellor, and so they clamped down on uh, the Weimar. The Weimar period in Germany is just as exciting as the early pre-code period in Hollywood, but Hitler clamped down at the same time that Joseph Breen clamped down, and so that took all the fun out of everything. But in other countries, as you say, Craig, all over Europe, other countries maintain that freedom and maintain their, their respect for women having their own sexual agency, and that's why I believe throughout the 40s and 50s, European movies were had much juicier roles for women than American movies did. Yeah. Um, even to this day, even like in France, we talk about all the time about how French movies respect women so much more. Well, you know, um, <clears throat> Catherine Hepburn got a lot of shit for not showing up at the Oscars. Uh, she was one of the few. I mean, she's just sounded like the coolest person, didn't she? I would love mm -hmm. to have known Catherine Hepburn. She just uh, 
seemed really smart and you know out of her time but she's also you know part of the privileged class and they do what they want to do you know and um she's probably i imagine her to be very similar to the character she plays in philadelphia story but maybe she's not like that i don't know um but she was but the a reporter wrote about her um luella parsons actually wrote She's not very gracious. She didn't send a telegram of appreciation when unable to attend. Someone at RKO realized this and sent one. So uh, Catherine Hepburn just did not give a fuck. <laughs> you know, you could do that if you were Catherine Hepburn. I don't know mm-hmm. that nowadays anybody anybody could get away with doing that and win four leading actress Oscars in their career. Right, and then maintain a career uh, for as long as she did, even though later on she was considered to be, she was lumped into the group of people who were considered to be box office poison. I don't know if we can talk about that. Maybe we'll save that for next, for when that happened in, in 1937 or 38. Mm. But she did um, have a setback when uh, several actresses were considered, were labeled box office poison and they had to go off and sort of begin their careers independently, if at all. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I but that, we'll save that for a future date. Another interesting thing, you know, I'm sorry I'm always bringing up the gay thing, but we forgot to mention that last year, Edmund Goulding, who directed Grand Hotel, was openly gay in Hollywood. And this year we have George Cukor, who directed Little right. Women and Dinner at Eight, who's gay. And how openly gay are we talking about? Like everybody in Hollywood knew, but, no, but because it was before the Internet, nobody in the rest of the country had a clue. Hmm. Yeah, but I, mean, I think ev- everyone in Hollywood was really well aware that Edmund Goulding was gay and that George Cukor was gay too. Um, there, uh, this is another thing maybe we could say. Uh, go ahead, I'll just go ahead and say it. You okay. know, the, the rumor is that um, Clark Gable wanted to kick George Cukor off of Gone with the Wind because he thought he was paying too much attention to the actresses and not enough attention to the actors. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but George Cukor, in one of his last interviews before he died, after Clark Gable was already gone, said he knows the real reason that Clark Gable wanted him off of the movie is because George Cukor rec- recognized Clark Gable as, as a hustler. He had, he had seen and known for a fact that when Clark oh, Gable first wow. came to Hollywood that he was a hustler. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. And that comes from George Cukor's own mouth. That's, That's his own interesting. story. Wow, that is so interesting. He was actually, from all everything that I've ever heard about Clark Gable, he was like a really nice guy, a good guy. You know, a really good honor. guy and really authentically masculine and very believably tough guy and, and powerful. All of that, but that's exactly what, you know, gay trade would, would have, they would have gone for that too. Right, sure. And it's hard out there, hard out there to make some, make a buck, you know? Yeah. Got to yeah. get out there any way you can. But, um, but that's an interesting story. What about Busby Berkeley? Was he gay? <laughs> I'm not even sure. Huh? No, it seems like he would be, but I'm, I, I have never heard that, so maybe he's not. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And in this year, in 1933, he had three three movies from Warner Brothers that Busby Berkeley had a hand in. And he totally revolutionized the musical. I mean, think about the chorus lines and everything. They were just, I mean, and, and he was one of the few, Bob Fosse would be another, where their name led the title. Uh, I guess you could mm-hmm. say Vince, um, who else would you say? Who You know, Robert Wise, maybe. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of other musical directors who were who were that famous. But Busby Berkeley, you know, you say, I'm going to go see a Busby Berkeley movie. You know exactly what you're in for. Mm-hmm. And he didn't even direct those movies. He was just a choreographer, but he was, he was, his was the name that was associated with those films. Right. And they were uh, 42nd Street and Gold Diggers of 1933 and what uh, Footlight Parade. If you've never seen Ginger Rogers singing, We're in the money, we're mm-hmm. in the money. If you've never seen that video, you should watch it. She's so cute. And she's like wearing money. 
<laughs> right. It, it's just such a great. That whole thing is so great because it's so sad. You know, they're they're not. Nobody's in the money. It's the depression. Everybody's right. poor yes, as shit. Right. You know, but here's these like giant coins covering Ginger Rogers. You know, all all through that movie. It's just such a sad time for like fantasy. But that's what people escape to. You know. And those movies Berkeley was another guy who was using cinema to its full advantage. Instead of just setting up a camera and filming people dancing on a stage, he, he sort of exploded the whole dance routine and turned it into a uniquely cinematic thing in a way that you could never accomplish in like a live, a live performance. Right. I'm glad you keep bringing that up, Greg. But so true what you said, that when they wanted to adapt stage plays because they thought the stage plays had prestige and they also had the dialogue element that they needed for sound motion pictures. But right. what they did so many of those times, even for a movie that I like a lot, the front page in 1931, it was stagey. It's stagey because they transplanted it from the stage and were too faithful to the stage origins. But it took directors like, like Lubitsch, as you say, to open it up and make it cinematic and tell the story visually, which we cannot recommend Trouble in Paradise enough. As, as great as Lubitsch is this is maybe his greatest movie i think okay well busby berkeley was not gay um according to wikipedia mm. he was married six times and okay. was survived by his wife etta dunn he was also involved in an alienation of affections lawsuit in 1938 involving carol landis in september 1935 berkeley was the driver responsible for an automobile accident in which two people were killed and five seriously injured berkeley himself was badly cut and bruised and brought to the court on a stretcher Wow. So, and then, um, I know. imagine the it stories said, back then, how, how a story like that would be treated on Twitter or on the internet today, what it must've even been a sensation well, even back was, then when they Right, because he was drunk. It was witnesses testified that motorist Berkeley sped down Roosevelt highway in Los Angeles County one night, changed lanes, crashing headlong into one car, sideswiping another. Some witnesses said they smelled liquor on him. And mm -hmm. after two trials for second-degree murder ended with hung juries, he was acquitted in the third trial. He died on March 14, 1976, in Palm Springs at the age of 80 from natural causes. Interesting. Uh, it is amazing. And, but his um, filmography is incredible. I mean, if you just go mm -hmm. on Wikipedia and you look at the movies that he was responsible for, my God, they're just, I mean, they were, they were the 30s and 40s, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about you're talking about Ginger Rogers being so cute. Talk about cute. This is a maybe a way to segue into Jean Harlow. What a cutie she was. Oh, what a, yeah. just adorable. She had her start in a couple of pretty racy movies called Red Dust and the Red-Headed Woman in 1931 and 32, I think, where she overtly is plays a prostitute. She's a hooker basically in both of those movies, and they didn't make any bones about it. And um, but. She was she wasn't really a very good actress. I think it was Capra, in fact, who put her in a movie and kind of trained her to tone down her brassiness and sort of learned her to have some self-control about her vocalizations and everything. But by 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 1933, when she made Dinner with Eight, she was absolutely recognized as a box office sensation mm -hmm. just because she was so adorable. There was one producer at MGM who sent a memo that he says she's got a great little body, but we can't give her very many lines. Oh. But you know, it's a shame. But they but she did polish her acting skills, and I think by Dinner at Eight, she had perfected it and learned how to use them because that first shot in dinner at eight she's in her bedroom and it's all white there's white curtains and it's white lace white 
furs. She's wearing this fur, white fur and negligee. Her, even her bed is like festooned with these white feathers. It's all white, and she's sitting there in bed with her white hair, white platinum hair, and she is gorgeous. The bedroom is like 35-foot ceiling. It's just extravagantly wow. gorgeous MGM set, you know, and she's on that. She, ta- she, she occupies that scene for like 10 minutes straight, and she blows you away. You've never seen anything like that on screen before. She is so adorably cute, and she plays as like low-class social climber, you know, so she gets all these juicy kind of things that she gets to say with Wallace Beery. And it's amazing. I love this movie you know, so why much. Why don't we have women like this anymore? Why don't we have, I mean, think about it. You have Marlene Dietrich, you had Catherine Hepburn, you had Jean Harlow, you had Barbara Stanwyck, you had Mae West, you know, interesting types of women, strong women, you know, um, beautiful women, but also odd women like Jean Harlow, who I think is just sexy as hell. She's not a traditional beauty. She couldn't get work today, probably. Right. You know? Yeah, I don't think so either because I just I don't I don't think that she'd be taken seriously. She would be sort of like I don't know like a Megan Fox type of person. You know, probably be regarded like that as just she, because it, it, she'd be like nothing but sex. People would think that's all she was about, but mm-hmm. she was so much more. It's just so tragic that what did she died of a simple kidney infection or something at the age of what thirty six or something. Oh wow, twenty six. Twenty six. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? That's Here so she is young. at twenty one. Queen of Hollywood, and then five years later, she's dead of a simple uh, medical misdiagnosis. She got septicemia from a wisdom tooth uh, extraction oh, that? that she'd had and became ill after that and wound up dying of kidney failure. I, I, I just want to hit Catherine Hepburn one okay. more time just because okay. I, I hadn't seen Morning Glory before, and she's just freaking spectacular. If you mm-hmm. like her at all and you've never seen Morning Glory, check it out. It's not the greatest movie ever made. The story is a little cliched and you've sort of seen it before but it's like she's going a million miles an hour and everybody else is standing still in that movie that's how great Mm. she is well here i am so i see i hope you're going to tell me your name i want you for my first friend in new york mine's eva lovelace it's partly made up and partly real it was ada love love's my family name i added the lace do you like it or would you prefer something shorter a shorter name would be more convenient on a sign, still Eva Lovelace and Camille, for instance, or Eva Lovelace and Romeo and Juliet sounds very distinguished, doesn't it? I don't want to use my family name because I should probably have several scandals while I live and I don't want to cause them any trouble until I'm famous when nobody will mind. That's why I must decide on something at once while there's still time before I'm famous. Don't you think there's something very charming, something that just suits me about Eva Lovelace? That's great to hear because I'd always was under the impression that it, because the movie is not really that well respected, that maybe I didn't know why she won that year. But that makes a lot of sense. If she was the best thing about the movie or the only good thing about the movie, then that makes a lot of sense. I want to seek it out now. It's telling that uh, she was nominated for that and not for Little Women, which Little Women yeah. got the Best Picture nomination. But she's, mm-hmm. I mean, she's fine in Little Women, and, and, and it's a fine movie, but she's, she's, she's actually spectacular in Morning Glory. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish we'd had a little more time to talk about King Kong because it's it, it was a, another thing where Hollywood made a, a lot of money off of this movie, but they totally ignored it at the Oscars. And it's, it's a, one of the, when you look back on 1933, it's probably the most groundbreaking, groundbreaking classic of 1933 and it affected movies then for decades afterwards. And then, but the Oscars totally overlooked it because it was genre, you know, because it was special effects, you know, almost like a horror movie genre. And also, Sasha, you'd mentioned that it was David O. Selznick's. Um, 
um, last production as an independent producer, and the reason that is is because Selznick Studios, I guess, was like it's like Caddy Corner, Caddy Corner across from MGM lot mm -hmm. in Culver City, and Thalberg that year in 1933 began to have really serious heart problems, and so he took a sabbatical to go to Europe, and and Louis B. Mayer needed a new production chief at MGM, and so he drafted Selznick to join MGM, and Selznick's first movie at MGM was Dinner at Eight. Wow. Another movie, another movie that the Oscars overlooked, but I really cannot recommend it enough. We were talking about how Marie Dressler is so hilarious in the movies that you were talking about, Sasha, when she won the Oscar that year for whatever, Pete and Tilly or whatever that was, something like that. But she is amazing in Dinner at Eight. She and Jean Harlow both light up the screen in ways that, you, that, would, that are funny and hilarious even today. And you know, I don't laugh at movies. It's hard to make me laugh at all. But these movies are so witty and fun and fun. I just really love Dinner at Eight. Yeah. Um, it's funny that, the, yes, and I, the, one, the one thing I'd like to add about Katherine Hepburn is that, and I would say the same about all the women we've talked about, is that you never forget the first time you see Katherine Hepburn. Like, she, she just has mm -hmm. that effect. If you've seen her, whatever movie you've seen her in, she really always makes an impression. She just was one of those unique individuals, and the camera loved her. You know, she just, and it's, it's not surprising that she's the only person that's won four Academy Awards and for leading roles, and almost every other actress, and that no other actress has ever won three, and only 12 have won two. So In spite of the fact that she never even wanted to play the game. She never played the never Oscar played campaign the game. game at all. She still won four Oscars. Right. And you can, you know, we can talk at some point about, we'll do a whole podcast about people who decided not to play the game because they, they come in and out. Um, but I would say that we're living in an era where it's just not possible to do that anymore if you want to win. If you want, mm -hmm. to, if you want to have a career, you have to, you know, you have to kind of, unless you're somebody who's so outside the system that it doesn't even matter, like Chris Pratt, someone like that. Mm -hmm. He's right. doing just uh -huh. fine, you know? He doesn't yeah. need the Oscars, so. Uh, I, you know, I'm really I sorry know. to say goodbye to the pre-code era. I've really had a lot of fun talking about it. I'm glad that we decided to go all the, back, all the way back to 1927 so that we could catch 1931 to 1934 because I think it's such an interesting period in American movies, not only for what it achieved, but for what we lost when they clamped down on it. And then we, never, we didn't get it back then for another three decades. Yeah. And that's a really great place to end it. So nice talking with you guys. All right. See you next week. You've been listening to episode 85 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy, Ryan Adams, and Sasha Stone. That's me from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And we'll be back next week with Academy Awards, the seventh annual Academy Awards.